Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. At Amicus Therapeutics, it's not just business, it's personal. CEO John Crowley founded the New Jersey-based biotech company in 2002. He did it to find a cure to save his two children from a rare and often deadly disease. And I am so pleased to have John Crowley joining us today on this podcast. Hi, John. Hi, Alexis. Great to be here. For those who don't know, give us some background on your family's story and the inspiration for starting this company. Sure. It all really goes back to 1998. I was about a year out of business school, and we had a young family. Uh, Our third child was born. We had him very quickly, living out in California at the time. And uh, when our third child was born, we were waiting on some test results on our second child, Megan. Megan was 15 months old at that time. It was March of 1998. And she seemed to be a perfectly healthy young baby until about a year of age. She wasn't pulling up in the crib, wasn't taking those first steps. And we went from pediatrician to neurologist and then blood test to muscle biopsy. Mm. And we got the results on Megan when Patrick was seven days old then. And they told us she had a rare fatal genetic disease that we'd never heard of. It's, you know, like any of us, uh, you know, Eileen and I were carriers for a rare disease and it doesn't manifest until you have a baby together. And even then there's only a one in four chance that any of our children would have the disease. And I remember asking the doc is, he said it was something called Pompeii disease. Mm. And I asked, is it serious? And he said, yes, it's, it's very serious. And he said she wouldn't live to be but a couple of years old. And, uh, you know, other than not walking at 15 months old, which isn't that, you know, atypical, uh, you know, it was as devastating as you could imagine. And, and then he looked down at Patrick in the car carrier and he said, uh, and he needs to be tested. There's a one in four chance he could have the disorder oh, as goodness. well. And so in in five minutes, your life is turned upside mm-hmm, down. Mm-hmm. Um, it became very personal. Now, they've gone on, though, to live good lives. I mean, your children, how old is Megan? How old is Patrick? Yeah, so what we, Megan is 21, Patrick is 20. Uh, and they're just remarkable. How yeah. were they able to defy the odds? So, what we did after they were diagnosed, I, you know, we went through the first day or two of shock and grief and sure. denial and anger, all that. And then, Finally, um, I went out and just started to look for researchers, and we determined that we wanted to learn everything we could, found some researchers, found one in particular who was working on an early potential therapy and uh, a medicine that he was developing. And I first threw a not-for-profit, and then as an entrepreneur, I quit my job at Bristol-Myers Pharmaceutical Company, been there about two years, and uh, with our mortgage and three little kids and healthcare insurance, um, we went and started a little company, and it had $37,000 in seed capital. <laughs> it was based in Oklahoma City, and it had four employees. And so the best they could do was for a CEO was me at the time. I was 31 years old. We took a $100,000 home equity loan on our house to pay some of the initial startup costs and then went out and raised venture capital, eventually discovering a medicine. Uh, that company was acquired by Genzyme, one of the larger biotech companies right. in the world. And in 2003, Megan and Patrick became the 27th and 28th kids in the world to receive a life-saving enzyme replacement therapy Mm. that they needed to take every other week for the rest of their life. And it reduced the size of their hearts. You know, their hearts were enlarged almost three times, and that's what they would have died from as children. So the medicine fixed their hearts, and it was always fixed. Um, Over time, though, the muscle strength improvements we saw began to wane. And I realized within about a year that it was a good first treatment but we needed to look for better treatments, maybe someday even a cure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how the kids ended up living to be where they are today. Uh, you know, they're still in wheelchairs, on ventilators. The disease, thankfully, never affects the mind. So they're incredibly mm. smart, precocious. 
and uh, my daughter Megan is a senior at Notre Dame, and she'll graduate with a double major oh. in um, in film and American studies uh, this May. Unbelievable! Yeah. I'd love to see some of the films that she's working on or will work on someday. Um, so the. Right now, your company, Amicus uh, Therapeutics, is involved in much more than just trying to cure, uh, treat and cure Pompe disease. But I, I want to talk about the drug you have right now in human testing uh, for, for Pompe disease. What is the status of that? Right. So this drug, when we, you know, the kids were treated in 03, 04, I realized we needed to go out and find something better, looked at all the new latest science, um, actually found a technology here in New York City at a Mount Sinai School of Medicine for a, a basically a pill that could replace the need for infusions in these patients. And so much less invasive. Much less invasive, more convenient, very different science and, and what we call a mechanism of action, you know, the way it works in the body. And so we started to raise some venture capital because we had had one successful company. It was a lot easier the second time. Mm. But what I really, and that was focused on a different disease, actually, on Fabry disease, another rare, devastating genetic disorder. Mm -hmm. But what I saw was the opportunity to build a company. And I realized we'd use that first technology. We'd push it as far as we could. But I wanted to build a company. I wanted to build one of the next great biotechnology companies in the world. And again, we started with five of us in a cubicle on Route 1 in North Brunswick, New Jersey. <laughs> and fast forward to that medicine now is known as Galifold for Fabry disease. It's been approved in all the major countries around the world. It was just approved in the United States back in August. Um, very exciting new therape therapeutic option for people living with that disease. But we also wanted to work in Pompeii. Mm -hmm. So we kept looking at lots of science options. Finally, by 2016, we had made our own enzyme replacement therapy, so still an infusion, um, and actually combined with a small molecule. And what we wanted to do is to find something that could get into muscle cells much better and have the potential to break down the material that builds up, that destroys the muscles in people living with Pompeii, so much better targeted, and we think potentially a much less immunogenic protein. Um, so that's what we've been developing. We put it in the first patients in 2016. We, uh, about a year ago, reported the results in those first 19 patients. It was really exciting. We were seeing in patients whether they could still walk, and, and, and Pompeii's a spectrum, so you could be mm -hmm. diagnosed from almost infancy all the way through late adulthood. Really? Like many genetic diseases. Yeah, this depends They don't on show themselves right away sometimes. Presents differently. So different genetic variations can cause different onset of symptoms, different severities. But in every case, Pompe disease is devastating and it's fatal. It just depends on when you start to see the symptoms. Mm. So we tested it in these 19 people with Pompe, all adults aged 18 to 60 or so, some of them were still in wheelchairs on or in wheelchairs on ventilators. Mm -hmm. Some can still walk. Some had, for an average of five years, been on the approved therapy, the Genzyme therapy. Some had never taken the therapy. And in virtually all of those patients, we saw the drug looked to have a really good safety profile. Also, we look in the blood for, you know, is it hitting the target? Is it reducing these what we call biomarkers? And in 19 out of 19 patients, it was. But most exciting, we saw people were getting stronger. That's if great they could news. walk, they were walking further, most all of them. If they were in a wheelchair, they were able to move their arms better, have better head control. Um, to change the course of a neuromuscular disease in patients is incredibly exciting. And now we're absolutely focused on getting it to as many people as we can. We're starting a much larger study in the next couple of months, up to another 100 patients. 
Even in the last few months, we've been adding about another dozen patients into the existing study. And that's the way we hope to get it approved. More patients, more longer-term outcomes, and eventually showing that the drug is safe and effective, we hope. And that, we think, could be a great new advancement for Pompeii. For sure. I mean, when you talk about these rare diseases, you are talking about a niche market. How many people in the United States have Pompeii disease? Pompeii is, um, in the United States, several thousand people. So we think about up to about 5,000 patients or people we can help with a medicine. If you look in, in what we'd call the, you know, the geographies in the world where we think we can get our medicines available, mm-hmm. and we're committed to very broad distribution around the world. We think that's incredibly important. You're probably looking at about 10,000 patients around the world. So a rare disease, um, but in the world of rare diseases, that's not considered an ultra, ultra rare disease. But even when you think about rare disease research, Alexis, you've got, in the United States alone, 30 million people living with one of 7,000 rare diseases. Mm. So one in 10 people live with a rare disease in the United States, most of them children. Are, are Megan and Patrick taking, are they part of the human testing of your Pompe drug? So we're not talking specifically about individual patients involved mm-hmm. in the study. Okay. You talked about Galifold, uh, which is the, your first drug to be commercialized here in the U.S. Yeah. It wasn't in sale already. Uh, it was available in Europe. Europe seems to be um, a little quicker when it comes to, to drug approvals than the versus the United States. Do you find that to be the case? I think over the last decade, you've you've seen that. I think you've seen more flexibility. You've seen more resources in some cases in, in Europe, the European Medicines Agency, more expertise, reliance on expert outside experts. So because of that, we were able to get our medicine approved in Europe. It was for full approval for people with any number of genetic variations that can cause Fabry disease. So it was approved in the middle of 2016. It was approved earlier in 2018 in Japan and now just in August approved in the United States. So what what's the revenue outlook now for, for Galifold? We think that there are many thousands of patients that we can help get on this medicine. In the uh, the sales for this year, we estimate to be 80 to $90 million. And we think at peak, this has a potential to be a medicine that helps, again, many thousands of people and can generate more than $500 million a year in peak revenue, which is exactly what we're going to use, that cash flow, mm-hmm. to build the research and development organization at Amicus. I want to treat dozens and dozens of these rare diseases and it's this cash flow that's going to allow us to do it. In fact, even in Fabry disease, Alexis, we're not done. When we got our medicine approved, I made a pledge to the Fabry community worldwide that we would take a significant portion of the cash flow, millions of dollars a year, and not just put it broadly into research and development for rare diseases, which we will, but specifically put it into research for Fabry disease until the disease is cured, not just treated. And that may be a years-long or decades-long right. commitment but it's absolutely something we're going to do. Amicus is in it for the long haul, for sure. I, I know that the Galifold uh, is for sale. It's it's expensive, $315,000. For a lot of people hearing that, you know, it's just it's out of reach. It's an impossibility. How can they get help? Are there discounts? Do health insurance companies help? Right. So we, when we started the company, it was really important for me that our medicines be access- accessible to all patients. Everybody living with a rare disease needs to get any of these approved medicines anywhere in the world. We put together a mission statement when we founded Amicus. So you start a company, all, all good companies have to have a mission statement. Uh, I wrote the first two words. I wrote, we believe. And then I turned mm-hmm. it to a team of seven or eight non-executives. I said, you guys fill in the rest. And we came. they came up with about 24 bullet points. And uh, one of which was we have 
um, our medicines must be fairly priced and broadly accessible. We wrote that more than a decade before we had our first approved medicine, mm. and we had to live it. So when the medicine Gallifold was approved in Europe, we priced it at parity to the existing, which were infusion-based, um, so needle-based therapies for Febre that had been approved. We priced it at parity, which meant the system was actually going to save thousands or sometimes tens of thousands of dollars in infusion costs. In fact, when the medicine was approved in the United Kingdom, which is notoriously you know, challenging on, on price and access for these medicines, yes. we were the fastest in recent times that any rare disease medicine had ever been approved in the United Kingdom and for reimbursement. And the UK officials, with a body called uh, NICE, their regulatory body, specifically noted the clinical benefits of the medicine mm. and the price advantages to the system and the cost savings. So we've applied that philosophy around the world. When it came to the United States, given that the price point of the one approved enzyme therapy was even higher than anywhere else in the world, we decided to price lower than the existing standard of care. For a new medicine, a more convenient medicine, we priced lower, tens of thousands of dollars lower per patient. So, so the $315,000 price is actually lower than something similar to it on the market it now. It is, right. And and we think, again, a more convenient with a medicine with a more differentiated way in which it works. Mm -hmm. That approved therapy, the needle-based therapy, is on average for adults about $340,000 per year. Okay. So we're 315 plus the third-party payers. The insurance companies are going to be able to save thousands or tens of thousands of dollars in infusion costs. But we went one step further. We also pledged that we would never raise the price annually of that medicine for the life of the medicine more than consumer inflation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been running about two or so percent yep. per year. To our knowledge, no pharmaceutical company has ever done that. You know, Merck's CEO, uh, Ken Frazier, recently talked about um, exorbitant uh, prices in the, in the healthcare industry for drugs, and he said that he thinks it's high time that we see disintermediation in this industry. We've seen it in other industries like the cable industry, and he says that we should expect the middleman to be cut out of the process sooner rather than later to bring costs down. Do you agree with that? I do. I think Ken's absolutely right. I think that will happen for the larger indications, the big pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. We already do that in the rare diseases. We didn't use PBMs or middlemen. Um, we do have distributors who physically help to get the medicine to patients. We pay them a fee for that. Um, but it's important that we, you know, any economic savings in the system go into research and development and go to patients. And that's something we're absolutely committed to as well. Last year, I know you and your family were guests at President Trump's State of the Union address, um, and the president uh, held up your daughter, Megan, who was there, as an example of what he called a slow and burdensome FDA. Would you agree with his assessment of the FDA? I think if you look back over the last 15 years or so, regulatory science has not kept up, had not kept up with the great advancements in the laboratories and the clinical trials, these new medicines. Um, you were seeing a lot of disparity among the divisions at FDA. So the cancer division, the oncology division, incredibly forward-looking, high regulatory science, flexible, moving those great new cancer medicines to patients. In other areas, including especially rare diseases, that was not the case at FDA. It was slow, and there was undue burdens on, on patients, on entrepreneurs, innovators. We needed to elevate regulatory science and modernize the way we do clinical studies. Um, so while President Trump highlighted it and, uh, you know, really highlighted our family's journey and, and my daughter's amazing strength and courage, and, yes. and we were proud of that. Um, and I do think with his appointment of, of an FDA commissioner, keeping the NIH director, Francis Collins, in place, that has led to really 
great new advancements in regulatory science. But it began even before that. I'd, I'd go back to really December of 2016 when a piece of legislation known as the 21st Century Cures Act, after a couple of years of work in the House and Senate, was finally signed. It was may maybe the only piece of bipartisan legislation <laughs> right. we've seen in a, a generation in healthcare for sure. And what it mandated the FDA to do was you know, modernize clinical style trials, employ new regulatory science, use biomarkers, use natural history studies, so not having to have placebo controls in studies, get medicines to patients faster, maintain the gold standard. That was my other question. We don't it, want to lower the bar here. I, the last thing in the world we ever want to do is to give patients medicines that are not safe and that are not effective. So I am a strong advocate that we need the gold standard. Mm -hmm. I don't want ever anything, any medicine into my kids that's not likely to work and that's not safe. But what we need to do, though, is to look at each new medicine and each disease individually mm -hmm. and make a separate risk-benefit assessment. Um, the study that you may do for a hair loss medicine should be very different than the study you do for a rare disease that affects a couple of hundred children where they may die by age five. Mm -hmm. um, and that's and we're moving toward that. I'm really excited about the changes I'm seeing at the FDA, the leadership, the culture, the organization, new tools through 21st century cures that they have. Um, so I actually think it's, we're in a dawn of a new era, not just in medicine, mm -hmm. but in the way that regulators approach the medicine. And I think that is terrific for patients. Do you think that the State of the Union address appearance had anything to do with the approval of Gallifold? Because it's my understanding that you had gone up for approval and were denied the first time around. And second time around, unless it was just timing, you were approved. We never, we had never applied for approval before. Okay. We had completed two what are known as phase three studies, late stage studies, that were sufficient for uh, after an exhaustive year-long review. The European regulators approved the medicine. In fact, it was approved by the European Commission. 28 to nothing for full approval. Wow, nice. Uh, and at the time, in, in, at the end of 2016, the FDA, uh, for reasons we don't entirely understand, asked for a third phase three in okay. that rare fatal genetic disease. Mm -hmm. um, what really changed um, was the 21st Century Cures Act, again, signed by President Obama into law. That was just being implemented in the first half of 2017. And we, we utilized that. We utilized the mandates of that law. We brought in, for instance, the patient perspective. We had patients go to FDA to talk about how the February community was suffering and they needed new treatment options. We also brought the FDA new data. We brought them what's known as real-world evidence. How was the medicine working in larger patient populations where it was being prescribed? And I was adamant this always had to be about science and medicine in the United States, as it was in Europe, as it was in Japan and around the world. And it was the science and the medicine and a deep, deep review by the medical reviewers at FDA mm -hmm. that convinced them that we were ready to file for approval. And then we went through a, you know, almost a year-long, deep-dive, exhaustive review of the science, medicine, and data that led to the approval. You said earlier that you want to combat an array of, yeah, of rare diseases. And to that end, you recently bought a, a privately held company called Selenex for $100 million in cash. And with this, you're getting a portfolio of 10 gene therapy treatments, I guess we'll call them. What what do you hope to do with these? We, we actually, so we say treatments, we actually hope they, they're going to be cures. That's mm -hmm. the hope. Gene therapy, I read my first paper about gene therapy, Alexis, back in uh, the summer of 1998 in Pompeii, showing that in animals engineered to have Pompeii disease, little mice, that you could correct their genetic defect at its core, cure the disease, not just treat it. Mm. Hugely exciting. I thought we were there. That was 1998. Yeah. 
gene therapies come a long way, and really in just the last year or two have we seen this explosion of successful results. You know, diseases like spinal muscular atrophy, similar to Pompeii, where kids typically wouldn't live with SMA1 to be two or three years old. Kids in a gene therapy study were shown at age two, three, and four to walk, all living. I mean, it's just cures. So we decided at Amicus about a year ago, again, with the notion that we want to build a company, not just a technology, um, that we were really going to move into gene therapies. Once I saw, when I saw those kids in SMA, that's what really pivoted it for me. I said, Mm -hmm. we have to do that. It's high science. It fits in with Amicus culture, and we're going to move in that direction. So we spent the better part of a year, strategic review, looking at about 100 rare diseases. We picked about 15 where we thought, you know, there was no medicine where there were room for great improvement. And I sent our science and business teams out to scour the landscape around the world, looking at dozens of companies, technologies, universities. And Selenex came to us actually late in the process this summer. Really interesting story. It was um, a dad named Gordon Gray and his wife, Kristen. Uh, Gordon's a very well-known Hollywood producer. uh, Man of remarkably large heart, um, kind-hearted man. And when his daughters were diagnosed with a awful rare disease known as Batten's disease, Mm -hmm. a a particular form of it called CLN6. He was told that um, they wouldn't live to be 10, and they would rapidly lose the ability to walk. They'd go blind. Mm. They'd lose the ability to think. Mm. Um, Just uh, This is a genetic rare disease? Similar to Pompeii, Mm -hmm. Gordon and his wife Kristen were silent carriers and one in four chance, Mm. and it turns out both of their daughters, um, Charlotte and Gwenny, uh, had the disease, and he just dropped everything, stopped making movies, and went around the world, found a Dr. Brian Kaspar in Ohio State, the Nationwide Children's Hospital there, mm. and his laboratory partner, Dr. Catherine Meyer. They had had good success in other rare genetic diseases just very recently at that time. And they, again, just moved heaven and earth and were able to develop the medicine, not just for Gordon's children, um, for now 10 children in a clinical study, and for 10 rare diseases. And these are, hmm. these are the worst diseases, Alex. I mean, these where there was no hope. Kids would die by age five or 10 in diseases like Neiman-Pixie, Tay-Sachs, Batten's. Uh, they destroy the brain, they kill children. There was never any hope, mm-hmm. and they've now brought hope. And based on these results, we've got reason to believe that more than 10,000 children who, would, who live with these diseases mm-hmm. now around the world, um, that we can develop cures for them. And that's what we're committed to at Amicus. Uh, that's, that fits in with our mission. We want to be able to help thousands and then tens of thousands and someday hundreds of thousands, maybe millions mm-hmm. of people living with rare diseases. It's what's become uh, you know, our family's Your life's passion. passion. Yeah, it's, uh, you talk about a labor of love. Yes. Um, in our little company, Amicus, that we started with five people on Route 1 in 2005, uh, just last uh, earlier uh, in September, crossed the 500-employee mark. Congratulations. And, uh, you know, we've got offices in Europe, Japan. We're building out Latin America. Um, and we, we expect that we could be up to 1,000 people by the end of 2020. All and this is a company that was just founded, really, and not that long ago. A little more than a decade ago. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. And we were even beginning of 2015. We were only, we started January 1, 2015, with exactly 100 people in the company. So we've Explosive grown. growth. It is, but it's driven by this explosion and this revolution in science and medicine. And now that we're firmly in the, in the field of gene therapies and human genome medicine, mm-hmm. looking at not just treatments, cures. Um, it's going to keep us busy for a long time. It has the potential to help so many people. 
and my vision is, you know, we become one of the world's leading biotechnology companies. And Ta hopefully we've got a path toward that now. Talk to me about what, I, I understand the company hasn't turned a profit yet. With these new gene therapies now, with it, with you buying Selenex, d uh, can you look out to when you may expect to turn a profit? We just last, uh, in the last year or so, started generating revenue. So when you look you look at biotech companies, you know, 99% of them never even get a product approved. Right. We did about the rarest thing you can do in biotech, and that's go from an idea to a molecule, to a medicine, to an approved medicine. And we decided that we weren't going to sell the company. We weren't going to sell the product to a big bio or a big pharma company. That our mission had to be that we had direct links to the patients and the physicians in the world. So we built out all these organizations around the world to deliver our medicines. And we're going to continue to do that. And, and you know, for us, you know, profitability, yes, of course, we're very mindful about building shareholder value. And we built significant shareholder value. We've got a lot more shareholder value to come. But if we just focus on making great medicines, I, one of my great mentors in this business is a guy named uh, Saul Bearer. Dr. Saul Bearer was the founder of a company called Celgene. Mm -hmm. And it's now one of the world's most yes. successful biotech companies. Started in New Jersey, uh -huh. handful of people, unbelievable. New Jersey has a great track record for pharma and biotech we companies. We do, we do indeed. Uh, and Saul was on my board for nine years. And even through some of the toughest times and darkest days at Amicus, he always believed. Mm -hmm. And he always told me, Alexis, Johnny said, just focus on science. Mm -hmm. Make great medicines and get them to as many people as quickly as you possibly can. You do that, mm -hmm. and all the financial success will come. It'll and that's fall. what we focused on at Amicus. I would imagine you were attractive to some of the larger pharma companies. Were you approached about selling yourself to them? We've had suitors from time to time, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we have fiduciary obligations, and we entertain those discussions. We think right now Amicus is significantly undervalued. And we think it would do a disservice to shareholders at any reasonable price to sell Amicus. So Amicus, we have no intention of selling. We're going to build it. Talk to me about the name. Where did that come from? It is the Latin name for friend. Mm -hmm. And when we started the company, I wanted this to be the most patient-focused company in all of biotech. So that if you were living with a rare disease or you had kids with a rare disease and you had a blank sheet of paper, what would you want a company to look like? What would you want it to do? So we had to start with the name. And a um, lot of ideas, and then we settled on Amicus Friend. We wanted to be a friend mm -hmm. to patients and be that friendly face and voice. Um, clever, maybe, but uh, we also have to live it. And to give an yes. idea of how we're living it, we're the only company in, in biotech and pharma that has a chief patient advocate, a C-suite level executive hmm. who reports directly to me, whose uh, job it is to advocate for patients living with rare diseases within the company. Uh, and that's exactly what. So they have their finger on the pulse. They're going out and talking to families and people They are with out the there right now at a conference in California. They're constantly traveling around the world. We now have more than 15 people in our patient advocacy teams. And while they're the primary face of Amicus, they're also the conscience of mm -hmm. uh, the, really the conscience of the patient within the company. Mm -hmm. We all have to live it. They just remind us to live it every day. And we do that. We, and, and it's not just lip service. We think about, you know, even acquiring Selenex. I brought Jane early in, or Jane Gershkowitz, our chief patient advocate, into those most sensitive business M&A discussions and said, Jane, do you think this is a good thing? If you were a, a mom of a, a kid living with Batten disease, what would you think about this? What about other diseases? Should we buy, acquire all 10 of them? Mm -hmm. um, and the answer isn't always yes, because we have limited resources and we have to make strategic choices. Strategy really is all about choice. 
like you said, you had to whittle it down from what was it, a hundred rare diseases exactly. to fifteen. I'd love tomorrow to to have R and D programs in all hundred. Maybe someday we will, hopefully. But we had to start with ten. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not stopping there. We hope to from here to the end of the year into twenty nineteen to bring in more gene therapies, more of these potential cures. Um, so I think you'll see some very exciting news from Amicus in the weeks and months ahead. We'll be watching for sure. You know, your I, your story inspired a, a Hollywood movie back in 2010. Yes, uh, Extraordinary starring, Measures. Yeah. Yes, starring Brendan Fraser, who played you, I guess, he in did. the film. And, and Harrison Ford was in the film as well. Was that a truthful depiction of your story? You know, they. it was really important for Eileen and I that our family's journey be told correctly. In fact, it took us about a year and a half to get comfortable with the notion of licensing our life rights, which is kind of crazy. I mean, again, you know, my dad was a cop growing up in North Jersey, mm. so we didn't, I didn't go to a lot of Hollywood cocktail parties growing <laughs> right. up. Um, but I put a lot of faith. It was Harrison Ford who read a Wall Street Journal story about our family and reached oh. out. Um, the only movie he's ever been an executive producer of as well as a star. Mm. And he and, and Michael Schomburg, Stacey Schur, the producers, really convinced me that they would make this the right way. So yes, they, the family depiction, the family dynamics, they captured my daughter, Megan, her spunk and spirit, 1,000%. Mm-hmm. Um, they got that completely right. The science and the medicine they got right. It was important for Harrison. He came to Amicus, came to our labs for a couple of days. Huh. I mean, he was literally in, in a lab code learning the science, and we had up on a board, you know, Genetics 101. Of course, when I had to send the email out that, hey, we've got a visitor coming in the end of the week who wants to learn a little about we've science. Got, we've got Indiana Jones coming. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and Brendan and Carrie Russell, who played my wife, were terrific. Yeah. They took some liberties. You know, they composited characters, condensed timelines, changed locations. They mm-hmm. had us living in Portland, Oregon, because that's where they filmed the movie. And, you know, we always lived in New Jersey. The company was in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. But they absolutely captured the, the spirit of, of what we did, the science, the medicine. And it was a great platform for um, us to be able to talk about um, what does it take to make a medicine and how mm-hmm. personal it is ultimately for people in need. You know, what you're providing a lot of times in biotech is you're selling hope. Yes. It's got to be hope tempered with reality. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot never overhype these things. You do a great disservice to people when you do. But, you know, you're, you're telling people that it, there's a hope and, and hang on. We can make your life better. We can help you live longer. And we can save your children. Um, it's going to be a long journey. It's filled with risk. And mm-hmm. I think people realize, too, it may, not, it may not come in time for them. We didn't know that it would come in time for our kids. I think when we first got into it, we just we didn't want to ever look back, Alexis, and ever have any regrets mm-hmm. that we didn't try. What do I'm curious what Megan and Patrick think about what you and your wife have done with Amicus. What do they tell you? <laughs> I think they take a lot of pride. You know, we one of those bullet points in our mission statement was that families are part of the experience. And we do that all the time, bring bring families in. So they've watched, they've kind of grown up watching Amicus grow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think they take, they take a good amount of pride in it as well. Well, we'll be watching as Amicus continues to come up with new treatments and, as you say, cures one day for these uh, That's the great hope. rare diseases. And uh, keep the hope. And John Crowley, CEO of Amicus Therapeutics, all the best to you and to your family. Thanks so much great. for being Thank here. Thank you, Alexis. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and share this podcast. And remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode.